We're going to start in 1 Timothy chapter 3. I think I included the scripture references in your handout so you'll kind of see roughly what text we're going to be looking at uh, in 1 Timothy. But now we are on session 4, uh, which is poets and warriors. I think this is a picture of what men ought to be like in the church. And so I just want to read uh, quickly, let's say, a foundation for men, uh, men and their roles in the church. And then we're going to take it from there. So for, it's 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15. It's Paul writing Timothy. He says, If I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and a buttress of truth. Now Paul's use of the language household uh, indicates a family. And what he's saying is the the church is the family of God. So I'm going to I'm going to suggest and I think that the rest of 1 Timothy supports this idea is that the the church is patterned after the family structure in terms of headship, uh, male female roles, things like that. The church is patterned after the family structure. So uh, the church is the household of God, it is God's family. And the question is how then do we behave in God's family? Should that take any cues from how we behave? in the created family between male, female, and then children. And so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put to you a couple of ideas between uh, masculinity and femininity in the, in the church. I think fathers uh, ought to be spiritual heads within the church, and men ought to be the guardians and the protectors of the church, while women, on the other hand, ought to be mothers and spiritual nurturers within the church, which is uh, more going to be Tim's domain in the next section, to talk about the, the motherhood within the church. But I'm going to be primarily focusing on men's roles within the church. And so there's, there's a couple of roles. I've kind of outlined them there for you uh, in the handout. A couple of roles that we ought to talk about. Two of them are, let's say, official roles, meaning they're official offices within the church. And then some of them are, let's say, my way of parsing out different ways men can relate to the church. So the first one uh, is with regards to eldership. Uh, this is also in 1 Timothy chapter 3, but I'll begin reading in verse 1. Where Paul says, this saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the offer, uh, office of an overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach. The husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach. Not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle. Not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. If someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he will become puffed up with conceit and fall into condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so he may not fall into disgrace or into the snare of the devil. So we have, let's say, 1 Timothy laying out for us one role, male role within the church, the role of elder. Uh, and this role, you can see, it, this is not something just any man can do. Okay? An elder is an office within the church, which means it only goes to qualified men within the church. So there are men who can be members of the church, uh, and then there are men who can be elder qualified within the church. Those are kind of two distinct categories. And the elder qualifications are listed here. So the role of, of headship within the church goes to only qualified men who would be in this position of, of eldership. And maybe a simple way to think about this, often we hear the term a pastor or bishop or overseer. Some churches will kind of define these different ways. All of that is really one term in scripture, elder, and they're kind of used distinctively. So you can be, so a pastor is an elder, is a shepherd, is an overseer. They're kind of all interchangeable terms and offices within the church. The reason I say that, the term, the verb that is shepherding or to shepherd is only ever commanded of apostles and commanded of, uh, of overseers in the church. So you have a, a position in Acts 
where, uh, where the command is shepherd the flock of God, which is entrusted to you. It's given to uh, apostles within the church. And then you have uh, example at the end of the book of John, where Christ meets with Peter and he says, feed my sheep, feed my sheep, feed my sheep. Christ is saying, I'm a shepherd. Now you are responsible for shepherding the church in my stead. So it's only given in those two roles to people who are going to be in the role of overseer. Um, and so that, it, that means that pastor, overseer, elder is kind of all one in the same thing. The verb to pastor is where we get the, is, is basically from the term to shepherd. They, they are interchangeable terms. So this is one office, and it's an office that only men can hold. Now, in the text, you'll see that because Paul says uh, they must be the husband of one wife. That's in verse 2. So only men can be qualified by that virtue. To contrast that, in chapter 5 of 1 Timothy, when he's talking about what is a true widow, he says they, can, they, must, be the hu- they must be the wife of only one husband. Okay? So Paul, is, that's, that means only women can be widows in Paul's definition of the term. Uh, and in this case, only men can be elders, right? He uses almost the exact same language in opposite directions. So uh, it must be a husband of one wife, meaning it must be a man. And moreover, it must be only the husband of one wife, meaning it can't be, in this context, it's probably not polygamy. It's probably like someone who's been divorced and remarried. So that person is not qualified to be an elder. So it's an it's a office within the church, and it's only able to be held by men who meet these qualifications. Um, before we get deeper into the other men's roles that are kind of enumerated here, there is something that I need to touch on because it's, it's a broad debate within our culture. Um, and, this is, and this is the question, as it's often phrased, how is it fair or why is it the case that this role is only for men? And what does that mean, let's say, on the ground in terms of functions that elders and officers in the church have to carry out in terms of their, their jobs? Uh, people often say that just seems like an arbitrary distinction to say only men can be elders and women can't be. So the, the verse that people often, often will look at in support of the fact that only men can exercise the role of eldership in the church is uh, just a couple of verses earlier in uh, 1 Timothy chapter 2. And this is starting in verse 11 and following, where you see Paul say, Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. And then his argument goes all the way back to creation where he says, For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, holiness, with self-control. Now, a couple things to note from Paul's argument there, because we've already touched on them. Uh, how is Eve, how does the woman have significance within the life of the church? Uh, it is through the raising of, of children, right? She will be saved in her significance in terms of her influence in the church through childbearing. That's kind of the, the point of that, that last verse there. And as a result of her needing to raise godly offspring, bear children faithfully, uh, she is actually to learn within the church. She's supposed to sit there and learn, which is something that's very countercultural, right? Rabbis and pagans of the time would not let women be present during educational contexts. And so Paul's actually giving a very countercultural command to say women should be present learning. But he gives creation structure for how women ought to learn uh, in that they are not to teach over the men, would say, within the context of the church. You see that restraint or that... Uh, uh, barrier put in verse 12, where Paul says, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. So this, this means that the woman's silence is not objective, absolute silence in any context. It means her silence is relative to the prohibition. You can't teach or exercise authority, which means if you're gathering together in a church setting, uh, women can sing songs out loud. Okay. They're not just to be totally silent. They can pray in the context of the church, because everyone can pray in the context of the church. Uh, they can read scripture, they can sing worship, 
They can share testimonies. These are things all Christians can do. So the, the silence is in relation to they're not permitted to do this kind of teaching in the church, the specific kind of teaching that Paul is prohibiting. Women are allowed to carry on ministry in the church, is my point. They're not supposed to be quiet all the time, never able to speak. But there is one thing that is off limits to them in this specific prohibition, which is the office of elder overseer, specifically the functional aspect of that office, which is preaching. So we know, for example, that women are able to teach within the church. They can be gifted in such a sense. I'll talk about that in just a moment. But the office of, of elder is primarily exercised in the preaching and teaching of God's word within the church. And thus this sense, teaching in such a way that exercises authority over the body, is off limits for women. So they can't, let's say, get up on a Sunday and preach from the pulpit because that is teaching that exercises authority over the body. Now, there are more specific questions that you can delve into more specific contexts, but uh, one uh, commentator on, on these verses and this, this reality has said, uh, the church ought to model submissiveness by submitting to these verses. So men in the church model submissiveness to their wives and to women by submitting to these verses, even though these verses uh, are very countercultural and make men uncomfortable. Men would rather, I think, say, no, 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 we're going to ignore these and we're just going to do whatever culture says. So men actually model the submissiveness that they're going to ask of their wives and of women in the church by submitting to this command from Jesus to actually have these prohibitions. So we can then ask the question, okay, okay if preaching is off limits, what about other situations that might come close to that kind of thing? What about guest preaching? So the regular office of administrative preaching in the church is tasked with elders. What about if someone comes in on a random Sunday and, and teaches? Is that the same caliber of authoritative teaching? Or we can ask the question, what about in small group settings, smaller groups uh, where it's, where it's uh, a, a shorter session or you're studying the word together? Can a woman speak in that context and give an insight into the scripture and even exhort uh, if it's a mixed group together? Or you can ask the questions, uh, what about in seminary, right? If, uh, if a seminary uh, has men who are learning how to be pastors, well, does that mean a woman could hold an office in a seminary and be a, a regular faculty at that school? Or is that actually kind of barring on the limits of some of these things? And I think uh, in all of those cases, all those questions I've just raised, we have to give at least some deal of liberty to how the church figures out what is right and what is not. Um, because what Paul here is, pro is prohibiting is preaching. And then uh, within our culture, we have many things that the church engages in in terms of teaching ministry that don't actually neatly fall into the category of preaching. For instance, the Sunday gathering of the church, where the, the primary, that's the primary gathering of the church where preaching is had, that is objectively preaching. But then you might say, well, what about other contexts where the church gathers to teach, right? These other things that I've enumerated here, Bible studies, small groups. Uh, is it okay for a woman to teach in those settings? And I think that uh, we, have to, we have to honor with discernment what the distinctions are that Paul outlines. For instance, uh, we have an example in scripture where women are, are told, uh, we're told about woman teaching a man. Uh, and this is the context of Prisca and Aquila teaching Apollos more accurately the things of the Lord. This happens in the book of Acts. Apollos goes on then to become a dominant teacher in the early church, actually rivaling Paul and Peter in terms of influence. Um, but he's, he's corrected by Prisca and Aquila. And of those two, it, it's often the case, it's asserted, and I think rightly so, that Prisca is usually the one who's put in a dominant thrust in those teaching moments. So Prisca is, let's say, mothering Apollos into right and sound doctrine. So in some sense, she is teaching him, but she's doing so in a feminine way. She's doing so in a feminine context, which is very different than, uh, let's say, if Prisca was to get up in the gathered worship of the saints and, and preach right, a sermon. So uh, I think that the way that you walk this out well 
is that women ought to engage in teaching ministries which reflect femininity and not try to usurp that and em embrace masculinity. I think that's kind of the, the pattern that, that is laid out here. So that means in any kind of mixed group setting where you have men and women present, you ought to be careful or wise or shrewd women how you engage in teaching in those instances. I think uh, because those things can sometimes be perceived as authoritative teaching, it might be the case that it would be wiser to stay away from that. Now, that's not saying in every context, in every situation, that uh, you can't speak or teach, but you have to do so, let's say, cognizant of, of how you're engaging and in the way that you're engaging. So, uh, now this is all to say, I just kind of commented in the earlier session on, on motherhood within the church. I think it's, it's worth saying at this point, uh, only men can be qualified elders, but it's also true that only women are the ones tasked with raising up future elders for the church. So only, only men can fulfill the office of, of being an elder, but as we've seen earlier, only the woman is given the primary duty and responsibility of nurturing up future elders within the church. Imagine if, if, if Christian women didn't do their duty, it's really hard to grab someone after college, train them in all the ways they need to be trained, and then put them as an elder within the church, right? So imagine if someone is raised from childhood with those qualifications. Now you have women producing essentially that faithful next generation. Only women are, are tasked with that. So elders uh, are, are only men. And I want to say a little bit more about, let's say, the qualification of elders, or let's say their role and engagement within the church. Uh, elders are in some sense teachers, but I kind, of, I kind of outlined this is both, let's say, teaching, poetry. They're, they're engaging in the intellectual world with the church, but they're also warriors in the sense that often the ways that elders need to engage in ministry will seem harsh to the congregation that they are engaging in ministry with. Now, that doesn't mean that elders have an unlicensed excuse to be brutal or harsh for no reason, but the very same attributes that make an elder good at defending the sheep from invasion are often attributes which will make the sheep uncomfortable. And so let's say a way this plays out is uh, elders will sometimes seem when they're engaging with false teaching within the church as overly harsh or overly nitpicky or sometimes overly rash or quick to, to engaging in those kinds of things. And the church will watch, and I think men, and, and often is the case, feminine sensibilities will be, let's say, off-put by those kinds of things. And that needs to be something that we're just aware of, because those are things that elders need to do often in order to actually defend the church soundly. Uh, you wouldn't want a shepherd who's beating the sheep and beating the wolves, but you do need a shepherd who is beating the wolves on a regular basis and guarding the sheep. And if sheep observe that on a regular basis, they're going to think a couple of things about the, the temperaments of their shepherd but they also will be happy to have that shepherd guarding and protecting them. Now, that doesn't mean that, uh, that elders have an unlimited use of harshness and, and rudeness. I think they should have it oriented appropriately towards the enemies of the church and the nurturing towards the church itself. Mm. So the body, when it's facing an intruder, uh, will protect usually very harshly. Uh, illustration I, I like to think of is if you are being attacked in the street, your body kicks on usually a ton of adrenaline, a ton of, a ton of endorphins to survive that situation. And you'll be able to endure scratches and bruises and all kinds of pain in order to get away from that situation. And that's kind of what elders do. Sometimes they use all that, all their energies and efforts, and sometimes it causes some damage to the body in order to get out of that situation. And then uh, later when the body is recovering from that scenario, uh, you're usually laid up in bed for a while, overly sensitive to pain, nursing yourself back to health. And elders need to be able to do both of those things, get the body out of danger and then nurse it back to health after it's safely out of danger. Both of those things a healthy body is capable of doing I think a healthy church needs to be able to do that as well. So men can be elders. Uh, I think men uh, are also called to be deacons uh, in, in these verses. Uh, this is verses 8 and following of chapter 3. 
uh, men are called to serve not only in terms of teaching authority within the church, but also in terms of serving authority within the church. I think Max defined it very excellently earlier. Uh, their, their authority over the church is an authority of service where they, they actually embrace that as part of their uh, call. This office of the church, I think, is needful today uh, because so many people lust for the center stage scenario on Sunday. Uh, but many people don't like the idea of having to serve behind the scenes in obscurity. And I think men could model what it looks like to actually do that well, first and foremost, before asking anyone else to do so. Uh, the other role, I think this is kind of me. Those are the two official roles. These are some other roles I want to hit quickly. Uh, men as heads of household. Uh, men are given these two official offices within the church, deacons and eldership. But every man, I think, in the church is called to be a leader within their own home, which means that godly men ought to take up the call to prioritize the spiritual growth of their wives and of their children. Family worship, the attending of church, uh, serving the wife so she can actually go out and fellowship with other women, taking care of the children, uh, pursuing the wife's heart so she knows what a taste of God's love for her looks like, pursuing the wife's mind so she knows, uh, so that she is guarded in terms of what she reads, what she listens to, cultivating her own knowledge of scripture and theology, that's all falling on the husband, right? You cannot punt that job to someone who gets paid on staff at a church to do that. They cannot substitute that role responsibility. So husbands, you are to read books uh, with your wives or books that your wives are reading and read the Bible with them. Engage her mind in a way that is actually cultivating her knowledge of scripture. If she's outpacing you, that's your problem, not hers. So you got to talk to them about their church, sermons. You got to pray with them. You have to let them see you praying. And you shouldn't be afraid to be seen on your knees in a position of weakness before God, pleading on behalf of your family and your wife so that God would provide blessings for it. This is, the, this is a man's role, one of the things they ought to do. It is the kind of man that is described, if this kind of man that I just described was the average man in a church, uh, you would immediately be able to fire 90% of pastors within the American church. And then you would have a lot more money freed up for missions and for mercy ministry. And frankly... A good chunk of the pastoral load should be rightly offloaded to men within the homes. It's men being absent and passive that causes the church to need another staff position, another pastoral role to be filled. So you have heads of household, you have spiritual fathers. Uh, this is now going on beyond the biological connections. You can think about 1 Timothy in the introduction where Paul says, Timothy, you are my true child. A spiritual father is someone who raises and disciples other men within the church. I just want to hit quickly one last one, spiritual brothers. This is how men in the church, I think, ought to relate to one another as peers and to their sisters in Christ in the Lord. Now, I want to say a couple words on this, given that uh, we've not addressed singleness or anything like that. But spiritual brothers, how, men, how you engage with women within the church is something you need to be particularly careful of. Uh, you need to consider how women in the church ought to be treated. And the responsibility for the care of women in the family and the church would fall to both the father and to any sons that the father raises up. And so it is the case within the church. Women within the church should feel cared for, respected, and honored by their brothers in the faith. And maybe one way of doing that would be that, you, that men, you shouldn't treat women in the church as though they are also men and should have male sensibilities. So when, as, if you would engage with other men in a certain way, in a certain demeanor, with a certain tone, and there are women present around that, you need to be sensitive to that because women don't have the same sensibilities as men. And brothers wouldn't put their sisters in kind of crass brotherly talk because that's just not appropriate for those situations. And men can model as spiritual brothers what it looks like to honor women by honoring them in those situations where both are present. Guys, don't treat men like, don't treat women like they're also men in terms of how you engage with them relationally in the family. Men and women, 
are not the same in how they engage. And since they don't engage in the same way, I think the duty and responsibility falls on men to be sensitive to how to engage and when to engage. So there's nothing wrong, I think, with being masculine. However, uh, to kind of sum this all up, a masculine man will actually know where to aim both their warrior skills and their poetry skills. They will know where to aim their strength and where to aim their nurturing qualities. And they must do both of those things effectively in order, in order for the church to grow well. Godly men can nurture in a masculine way, not in a, in a feminine way, right? Mothers can nurture in a feminine way. But when they're interacting with their sisters, they can also be sensitive. They can also engage cognizantly, knowing that they're not, they're not engaging with another man at that moment. That's one of the ways we honor these gender distinctions within the church. But being sensitive to, let's say, women in the church or to spiritual mothers in the church, men, does not mean that you are effeminate. It means that you're being masculine and you're submitting as a son to his mother or as a brother to his sister and you're engaging with them as women within the church. I think that's one of the ways we can honor these different distinctions. So with that, let me close with a quick word and then we will get to questions. Lord, I thank you for your word given to us. Lord, there's so much richness in here, so much more to uh, apply and it's so hard to apply all these things. And yet you are gracious, you give us your spirit to sort these things out, to walk in them well and wisely. Uh, Lord, I ask for your grace as we try to do that faithfully as a body. Uh, and even now as we just are, are scratching the surface really of what it means to engage as men and women within the church. We pray this all in your name. Amen.